I'm going to talk about change today and the possibility of change. Now, a few prefatory comments. First, I'll say that this is not an exhaustive teaching at all. There is much more to say about the topic of change. I hope this is more of a primer to many more teachings I and others around here will do on this subject. It's been something I've been thinking about and talking to a spiritual mentor of mine for the past three years. So this is just the beginning of what I want to start to say on this subject. Second, I feel like today is more of a teaching than a sermon. So take plenty of notes. I think this is very, very important. Second Peter chapter 1. Verse 3. I'm just going to read one verse now. We'll get into the rest of it a little later. Verse 3. I'll read this and pray. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us, called us by his own glory and goodness. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord. I thank you for a new year that is upon us. And with that, oftentimes in our minds and our psyches, even in our culture, there's all these new possibilities that open up to us. And I know in front of us, Lord, a lot of us have a lot of hope for seeing certain things change in our lives. And I pray that we would know by the power of your spirit that change is something that is possible, that the Jesus community is a community of transformation. So would you change us into your likeness, God, by the power of your spirit, for your glory, and through your goodness do this, Lord. I submit the things that I want to say. I know I have just so many things I want to talk about and I want to say. Would you find the through line, even in my own heart, to communicate the things that you desire for this church. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Leading up to the new year, and especially on January 1st, the internet kept throwing all kinds of shade on New Year's resolutions. I don't know if you noticed this, but everyone talks about how approximately 95% of New Year's resolutions are broken by the end of January. That is not helpful. Thank you. <laughs> how we need to stop making resolutions and start making daily goals. Or another article I read said, we need to make the goal to have no goals. Another article was about how we go wrong with our resolutions. Even when we start talking about it around here, a lot of us like, oh, we kind of make and we kind of don't. Who does? And we kind of judge people that make resolutions. But resolutions tap into something we all want. We want to change. We want to progress. We want to be better. Some of us want to be better physically. We want to feel physically better this next year. Some of us want to be better emotionally or even better spiritually. We want to be better friends and better brothers and sisters. Maybe that came in stark relief when you spent time with them over the holidays. You want to be better at serving the poor, be better parents. Some of us want to be better Uber passengers. That's like one of my things. I just want to be a better Uber passenger. I'm really bad. At the core of wanting to be better is the desire to change, which is what New Year's resolutions tap into, our desire to change. And I've been thinking about this for a while. I've seen my wife, Ashley, change. I've seen her change to become a better person. Through her recovery, as I've mentioned before in a previous sermon, I've seen her completely change. But the change that I saw in Ashley's life took work. It didn't happen overnight. It didn't happen without her showing up with a lot of effort. It didn't happen without a lot 
of two steps forward, one step back, grinding it out, putting in the energy and the time committed to change. But she has changed. She has grown. So much so that life is literally growing inside her right now in the form of a baby. And it's a gift. We know it's a gift. But it's also a gift she had to put in effort into receiving. When she began her recovery program, they asked her if she had any hopes, any goals, any resolutions. Ashley's goal, among others, was to become healthy so she might be able to have a baby naturally. She wanted to change and become the kind of person who has a body where having a baby would be a natural event. And as I've seen her change and as I've seen many other people not change, it has me thinking a lot about how we actually change. How do we change to become the kind of people whom Jesus said he was making when he said, behold, I make all things new. How do we become those kinds of people? How do we become the kind of people who are less anxious and more joyful and less lust-filled and more patient, less outraged and more kind? And I've been thinking about this a lot for a few years now. And a friend of mine sent me an article recently that isn't published. So he said, I can't share it, but it got me thinking because it was basically about how when people go into AA and they work the steps, they have the power to be sober. I mean, the stated aim of Alcoholics Anonymous is transforming alcoholics into people who lead flourishing lives of sobriety. And the reason why sobriety is possible is because AA has a theory of how people change and a set of practices designed to execute that theory in the lives of real human beings. Now, you may all know that AA, or you might not know, actually, I don't know if you know this or not, AA has a distinctly, distinctively Christian origin. So if you're starting to trip out right now that I'm bringing AA into a church illustration, <laughs> calm down and listen to my point. My point, my point is that one of the things that has frustrated me about the contemporary Protestant evangelical church is that it lacks a clear theory of personal transformation that is codified in practices that are easily accessible to those who want to be transformed. That, that's the thing that, that, that this, this, this article that was sent to me stirred in me. It's like we lack a very clear theory of personal transformation that's actually codified in the practices that everyday people can do. Typically what happens is you go to a church like, how do you change? Well, it goes something like this. Believe the gospel and go to church. Yes, that, those are great things. And I, and I will reinforce those things in a second. Yes, believe the gospel and yes, go to church. But the question that I've been thinking about is why if you do what AA says, you have the power to be sober but if you do church the way we do church in the contemporary Protestant evangelical complex, you don't necessarily have the same power. Can the church produce sober-minded people? Just look at our nation, a quote Christian nation. Can the church produce sober-minded people? I mean, again, don't get me wrong. I, there are powerful moments in and around the church. I love the church. I spent my life's vocation devoted to the church. But I desire to see the change that Jesus promised. The transformation that Paul was talking about when he said, the old has passed away, behold, all things are new. Now, how do we get the newness of Jesus down into how we treat alcohol? 
or treat our enemies or our bodies or our cities poor or the people in our community group or the person asking for a seat next to us at church. So here's my biggest, my, my, not my big, biggest, my, my first and best attempt at giving an introduction teaching on how to change and how, and I would like to present to you a theory of personal transformation or a theory of change. And I want to start here. I want to start with obviously the gospel. And I want to start with the gospel identity. First, you and I are changed. Change is possible by a change in your identity. The scriptures, when the scriptures talk about a change in the Christian's life or the heart, the soul, the inner life of a Christian, it talks about you going from darkness to light, from the outside of God's presence to, the, to being in God's presence, from being an enemy of God to being in the family of God. This is how the New Testament writers talk about it when they talk about salvation in Christ. For example, 2 Corinthians 2 or 5.17, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. When you become a Christian, you, your life gets transferred into the life of Christ and the old has passed away and the new has come in. You're renewed in your inner person. You are fundamentally, who you are fundamentally changes when you trust in Jesus and begin to follow him. Who you are fundamentally changes. You are from then on a follower of Jesus or we say a Christian. The old life that you once lived died and you are, in the words of Jesus, reborn. This is what Jesus said. This is how Jesus said it. Whoever wants to be my disciple, a disciple is someone who followed and learned and became like their teacher. Whoever wants to become like me or be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. See, the cross was a horrible way to die in the first century. Jesus is saying, you have to die. If you want to be a fo my follower, if you want to be my disciple, here's how you get in. You have to die. The entryway into life in Christ and being a Christ follower is death. But here's, here's the beauty on the other side of death. New life is promised. It's like the old person that you once were dies and this new life emerges. There's a rebirth, Jesus says to Nicodemus in another place. Paul, one of the early followers of Jesus, said it like this in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. He goes, I don't, I don't, my, old, my old self is dead but now Christ lives in me. Another place he says, I live in Christ. It's just like a, that's the unity thing from the Everyday Mystic series that we're getting to. That's just like, I have unity with God. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live, this is interesting. Because he just said he died. I no longer live, but I live. Like, what do you mean? You no longer live, but you live. What he's, Paul is saying is, I had an old life and I died to it. And the new life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen. Notice all this language, death and new life. It takes a death, a turning from your old life and turning to Christ for rebirth. This is the power of God to change us. In this change, we have new life. We have a new legal status before God as someone who is forgiven. Our sin is washed away. We are brought into the family of God, the church. We are given a new purpose in this life to know and love and serve God and likewise to love and serve others. 
This is more or less the gospel. And the gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity. The gospel is the A to Z. It's everything. This is everything. That's, so there's, there's the gospel. Okay, that, that's how change happens. God changes us from the inside. And yet, how do we change? That all sounds great. You've heard this. If you've been in this church before, you've heard this before. That's the gospel. And it sounds great. It is great. It is the gospel. But there are followers of Jesus that are guilty of all kinds of gross stuff. Like living lives of deception, like pornography, like greed, like cynicism, like sexual immorality. Let me define that for you because some of you guys don't know what that means. Having sex with people whom you're not married to like racism, like sexism, and the list goes on and on and on and too often makes the news. And I would guess that list describes a lot of self-professing Christ followers who have been baptized, who have before either this church or another faith community said that you're dying to yourself and you're following Jesus. So the question then remains, how do we change? And why don't we automatically change when we believe in the gospel? Why don't I come forward, I believe in the gospel, and I walk away, and, I'm, and it's like, oh my gosh, my life's completely different. Or maybe a better way of saying that is, what changes when I believe in the gospel? What's all the talk about, behold, all things are new? What's new? And this is where I think the identity language is very, very helpful here. You have a new identity before God that is real. You are really new. Christ sees you as in him, you are really forgiven. You are really made new. You have an identity before God that is real. It's just not fully realized. Write that down. I think that's important. It's real, but it's not realized. You're new. You're in Christ. You're beloved. You're a child of God. You're a follower of the way of Jesus. It's real, but it's not realized. It's real. God says it. It's who you are, but it's not realized by you or others fully yet. It's true about you. It's in you. It's, it's how God sees you, but it's not realized yet. The gospel of Jesus produces disciples of Jesus who are like him in a real sense, but not yet in a realized sense. And it's, it's probably important to point out here that the change God is making in all of our lives, or at least is desiring to make in all our lives, is for us to become like Jesus. That is the essence of Christianity. It's Christ-likeness. When I say change is possible, what I'm talking about is change is possible for you to become like Jesus. And now your fundamental identity changes when you place your hope in Jesus and the work he did on the cross to bring us to God. That is real. But the cry of, the, of most of the New Testament is, if that is real, then be who you are. Or said differently, make what's real about you realized. Keep changing. Keep transforming. Keep becoming like Jesus. And I find what Peter, an eyewitness and early follower of Jesus, said about this is vital here. So this is where your Bible should be open to 2 Peter chapter 1. We read the first verse. Let's just read down to verse 9. Peter says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. What, what Peter's saying is, you don't lack the power for change. His divine power has given us everything we need. You don't lack power. Can I, I don't have the power to change. You have the power. 
Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them we, you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world caused by, the, by evil desires. What Peter's saying is you don't lack the invitation to divine nature. You can realize Christ's likeness. That's the invitation. He's like, you actually can participate in the divine nature. You can actually become like Christ. Next verse. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Put this on your refrigerator. If you have that thing still anymore. (laughs) Put this somewhere where you see this. This is key. Peter says that we don't lack the power for a godly life or Christ-likeness. We don't lack the invitation into God's divine nature to become like him. What most of us lack is the effort to do anything about it. You and I lack effort. You and I lack the effort to actually become like Jesus. The invitation's there. The power of the Holy Spirit is there. It's there. I've given you the power, the divine power, in and through the Spirit. This was the whole Empowering Presence series. I have given you the invitation to divine nature. This was the whole um, um, Everyday Mystic series. Like, it's there. You lack the effort. And when we lack the effort... Peter says, we have become blind and forgotten that we've been made new by the cleansing of our sins. Now, let me clarify this real quick. Because what's happening right now is if you've grown up in church, all these lights are going off for you. It's like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Is he talking about a workspace righteousness? If that even makes sense to you, no, I'm not. (laughs) By effort, Peter is not talking about earning your salvation. That's not a thing. You can't earn your salvation. And he's not talking about willpower. That's another thing you have to make sure you understand. He's not talking about willpower. Willpower will not make us more like Jesus. It will not add to our faith goodness, our knowledge or self-control or perseverance or godliness or mutual affection or love. Willpower won't do that. You cannot will yourself to love. Willpower won't work because the will was not meant to have power like that. The will is simply the human capacity to choose. That's all the will is. The power lies in the mind and in the body. The will is like a car's power steering, if you've ever driven a car. It has the power and the capacity to turn where the driver wants it to go, whether that's a human driver or a robot or whatever. Power steering is like willpower. Its power is in the power to do what the driver tells it to do. Are you following me? Professor and writer James Brian Smith, in his Good and Beautiful series, he has three books that I highly recommend to you that are insanely good. Good and Beautiful God, Good and Beautiful Life, Good and Beautiful Community. He writes this in Good and Beautiful God, the first book. He writes, the will is neither strong nor weak. Like a car, it has only one task, to do what the driver, the mind influenced by the body and the social realm, tells it to do. 
Therefore, change or a lack thereof is not an issue of the will at all. Change happens when these other influencers are modified. The good news is that we have control over those other influencers. When new ideas, new practices, and new social settings are adopted, change happens. He goes on to say that the problem is not that we don't want to change, nor is the problem that we are not trying to change. The problem is that we are not training for change. We have never been taught, he writes this, we have never been taught a reliable pattern of transformation. Now this takes us all the way back to the article my friend sent me that I can't talk about yet. The one about AA and how the church lacks a clear theory of personal transformation that is codified in practices that are easily accessible to those who want to be transformed. A few years ago, I was reading Dallas Willard's The Spirit of the Disciplines book. The book is entitled The Spirit of Disciplines, Understanding How God Changes Lives. And in the second chapter, he says, imagine you convince someone to really be like Jesus. That the person is convinced that it is only as I walk with him and become really like him that I can know the fullness of life that he promised. And imagine you convince someone like what it means to, to, to believe in Jesus, that you follow him and you follow him and you become like him. When you become like him, that is the abundant life that he promised. And the person says, I get it. Okay, I'm in. Now tell me, how do I do that? Dallas says, no leader would turn and say, oh, well, no, you shouldn't really try to do it. It was just made a good sermon or something. But don't, don't try it. Don't try this at home. Don't do that. No leader would say that. But he also says this. On the other hand, it is the rare leader today who can calmly say, here is how you do it and state specific tried and true steps actually accessible to the earnest inquirer. And in the book, I highlighted this section and I wrote, be that rare leader. I have, I've, I've wrestled with this. It's still not completely there formed yet or completely filled out, but I want to be, I want our church to be the, a rare kind of church that when people come to our community and like, we want to follow Jesus and we want to become like Jesus, we go this and this is how we do it. We want to be that rare church that this is the process of how we believe people are transformed into Christ-likeness. So how do we do it? How do we change to become like Christ? We have been re- when we have been renewed by the gospel and what's true and real about us is that we are in Christ, but that's not realized yet. How do we participate or as Peter says, make the effort to become like Jesus? Now here's our working theory of transformation or a theory of change. It's adopted by Willard's, from Willard's Golden Triangle of Transformation. It's modified a little bit. First of all, first of all, let me say this, that we believe that change is possible. That Jesus, the Jesus community is a community of transformation into Christ's likeness. And we want to make every effort through God's divine power to be part of that transformation. And here is a little, like a little triangle of how we believe change happens. Change happens through truth, through practices, through community, and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Truth, practice, community, Holy Spirit. 
So if you were to ask me, how do we change? I would tell you, I look you straight in the face and say, we change through truth, knowing the truth, knowing what reality is, knowing Christ. We change through the practices that Jesus called our, us to live into through his way. We live, uh, we change through community, a people, a group of people that are going in the same direction. And we change through the power of the spirit. That's how we change. And we give ourselves over to these things over and over and over again. Real quickly, let me explain what I mean by these. This, this is a primer. Truth. In order to change, we need to know what's real. We need to know what's true. We have a truth problem in our world right now. Truth comes at us in all kinds of ways, though. Sometimes truth hits us when we hit rock bottom. When we have to face our demons, we have to face our failures that we have been denying for far too long. Sometimes truth hits us in the form of a new idea, a new thought that never occurred to you before. Ultimately, truth comes at us in Jesus Christ. Jesus came to bring truth, not just teach truth. He said that he himself is truth. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He doesn't just teach truth. He is truth. He also said about his teachings that his teachings were the truth and the truth you will know and the truth will set you free. He says, I am the truth and I teach the truth. And if you follow me, you will know the truth. You will walk in the truth. And if you know the truth, the truth will then set you free. We need the truth of Jesus to change. We need the truth of Jesus Christ to be free. And this, I will admit, is harder than it seems. And here's why. There is a difference between embodied truth and professed truth. The church has a long history of professed truth that is not embodied truth. A way we can understand professed truth versus embodied truth is think about gravity for a second. Think about gravity. And think about the very first time you've ever went up on a tree and did a ropes course. Have you ever done, has anyone ever done that ropes course? In the, okay, probably a lot of you, okay? So what happens in a ropes course is that you, you, you know, you've been taught to believe that gravity is real. You embody that truth that gravity is real. You believe it in your core. You rely on this truth to be real. You rely on gravity. You and I live by the rule of gravity. We know this. This is not just a truth that we believe in our head. It's a truth that we embody every single day. So you step up some 40, 50 feet into the sky on this like swaying limber tree and you're tethered by this like diaper harness sort of thing to ropes that are just kind of stringing, strung along there and you're, to you're told to believe new information. You're brought up there and you're told to believe that gravity won't kill you up here because you have these little ropes wrapped around a diaper you're wearing, okay? That's what you're told and you're up there and you're swaying on this like little thing. You're like, gravity won't kill you because you have these ropes. Okay, now I can profess these truths all day. I can go, gravity won't kill me. I have ropes. I have ropes. You can even say a creed. I believe that I have ropes that will not allow me to fall and die. You can recite a creed. You can sing a song about it. You can be up there like ropes or whatever. Whatever, whatever it is, that is professed truth. That is not embodied truth because here's why. They have this thing called a leap of faith. You're like, okay, so here's three feet. And we want you to jump to that plank. And you're like, oh, okay. And your body won't go. If you ever try this for the very first time, you're like, one, two, three, and, you're like, and you start laughing, you're like, oh, my, my body won't move. 
Like it literally will not move. Well, why, why won't it move? Because my body believes something about gravity. And my mind's saying, no, believe that you can jump and you won't die. But my body won't because the embodied truth is what rules at that moment. And you have to practice like little baby steps. And you have to go up to the ropes, of course, again and again and again. And finally, you come to believe this new information that you, you won't, gravity won't kill you. Okay. That illustration is why it's very, very hard to break off from old lies that you live into. The old lies that you live into are very easy to say, I don't believe in these lies anymore, but they're embodied. It's very easy to say, I don't believe that I am ugly, but that belief is embodied in your bones and in your neural pathways and in your mental maps of reality. And someone can tell you that you're pretty or that you're worthy, but you've been living your life under a certain lie. And truth might be professed, but is not embodied. Truth, therefore, is necessary for change, but it's not sufficient for change. It's necessary. You need, you need truth, but it's not sufficient. You need a whole body way of living into truth. This is why you need practices. This is why you must give your life over to a rule. This is why you give your life over to a new way of operating, new rhythms of grace, new ways of following Jesus. Practices are the way we get the truth of who we are into our bodies. Ways of practicing or making every effort to get the truth of who we are in Christ into our bones, into our mental maps of reality. The historic practices have been things like this. Prayer, fasting, meditation, Sabbath, giving, chastity, to name a few. These are things that the historic Christian church for centuries and centuries have been doing to embody the Christian life. What we have done in pragmatic kind of Western Protestant religion or whatever is like we move it all to the mind and we just profess things. We say the Bible is God's word. Jesus is the way. But we don't live that way. We profess the Bible is true. We profess that we believe the Bible, but we don't do it. We don't embody it. It's not in our bones. American consumerism, secularism is in our bones. And so the only way to get that out, to get from I'm a professed Christian to embodiment is through practice. This is why in a city like San Francisco, this is what I found. These are the Bare minimum practices, like start here if you're going to start practicing anything. Bare minimum practices to survive the kind of life um, that's, that, that San Francisco pulls you away from to like remain a, like a, a close follower of Jesus. Bare minimum. I'd say daily devoted, undistracted prayer and meditation. Daily devoted, daily. I'd say work up to 30 minutes a day. This is why we created those cards for you. 30 minutes a day, undistracted, with God, your heart exposed to God in prayer. Search me and know me, God. I want to know you. I want to know the scriptures. I want to orient my life to ultimate reality. I want to practice this. The second is a weekly rhythm of Sabbath keeping. Weekly Sabbath keeping. I can't, my wife Ash and I can't survive without the rhythm of Sabbath in this city. This city is like intoxicating. Every single time I drive out of my neighborhood to a different neighborhood, I'm like, why haven't I been here in two years? 
And I want to try that new place. I want to do that new thing. And I want all the things. Like I, that's, and Sabbath breaks all of that every week where I'm, I don't work, I rest. I'm not on my phone. I'm, we're not on a run. We're, we're, we're in the presence of God resting. We're entering into the rest that Jesus brought us. That's every single week. The starting, that's a starting point. And these, this is, these are practices that begin to orient us, orient our, my, our actual physical bodies towards who we are in Christ. But too often, spiritual formation in Christ's likeness is often approached as a very individualistic endeavor. Our formation into Christ's likeness cannot happen outside of community. A community of people who are moving in the same direction. I have a lot to say about this. Therefore, I will hold that entire topic for next week. Lastly, and probably honestly most importantly, to be honest, we need the spirit of God for change. It is God's spirit that leads us into all truth. It is this Holy Spirit that makes us one with God as we engage in spiritual practices. It is a spirit that brings us into fellowship with the Jesus community. It's a spirit that brings transformation. This is why we took some nine, ten weeks to do a spirit series last year. Like the Holy Spirit is at the very core of change. That's why he's in the very beginning, in the middle of that triangle. He's the core of change. Change happens by the power of the spirit. My wife, Ashley, for years couldn't get pregnant. You can take that off the screen now. She couldn't get pregnant. And... Every story is different. So when I share this story, every story is different. And the point is not about pregnancy, but about change. She wanted to change. She wanted to have a baby, and she knew deep, deep down that an eating disorder was keeping her from that. And so we prayed. We asked God to do something supernatural. There were times where I asked God to short-circuit her body and just do something miraculous, like blow everyone's mind, do something miraculous, God, but it wasn't God's will, and I'm so glad it was not God's will. Ash changed by facing the truth and accepting the truth that she needed help. She changed by accepting the truth and surrendering control of her own recovery. She changed by practices, daily practices, very focused practices aimed at helping her live into a new reality. She had to learn the differences between the truth voices of Jesus and the lies. She would call them her ED voices. Voices that, that, that were telling her something different about reality. She had to change, what the, oh, she had to change to even to recognize an eating disorder voice by practicing a new reality. She changed by a community, a support group of people who were on the same journey and a community group that allowed her to cuss and cry when she was angry about her recovery. She'd show up so angry about where she was at. And, her, and our community group completely just got around her and cried with her and prayed for her and cussed with her, all the things. She was changed ultimately by the Holy Spirit who was weaving everything together, who was protecting her, who was hyper-growing her during this time, who was giving her resources and capacities that honestly other people that she was journeying with didn't possess because she possessed the power of the Spirit. Was Ashley saved before recovery? Of course she was saved. Did she believe the gospel? 100% she believed the gospel. But change into Christ's likeness doesn't happen without effort. It doesn't happen without working the truth of who we are deep and deep into our bones. By realizing that we are sinners 
and that we need salvation in Christ. As I was finishing this sermon, Ashley popped her head in my office and she said, and I want you to add this at the end of your sermon. <laughs> I want you to tell them that it's a changed lifestyle. You have to keep on doing these things. Do not let them think that I did these things once and then I'm, I'm fixed. I'm not at all. It's a new way of living. She says, I still am in my support group. I still need that community group that she can still cuss and cry in. She still has to give herself over to the truth of who she is in Christ every single morning. She still has to work the practices and she's still dependent on the spirit. Tell them that, she said. I go, all right, I'll tell them that. That it's a lifestyle. A change of lifestyle is exactly what Jesus is getting at when he talks about denying yourself and following him. Jesus isn't saying, wear a cross around your neck or an earring. I'm, he's not an accessory. He's not saying, hey, do you want to follow me here? Just take this trinket and show up to church once every three weeks or whatever. And that, that's it. You're good. It's, not, it's, different. it's a completely different lifestyle. Jesus isn't an accessory. It's adopting an abundant life. In pre-gathering prayer, we were around here praying and we sensed the Spirit saying, I mean, a few things that I'll bring up in a second. But one of the things that stood out to me pretty, pretty uh, poignantly was the Spirit was saying to our church, stop trying to do all of this yourself. And I say, yes and amen to that. And I'm sitting that like, yes. But here, I have to clarify this. What does that mean? It would be really wrong to think that it means you don't have to play a part. That's not what it means. What it means is that you're not in control. It means you have to surrender control of your relationship with God to God. See, what I really wanted to do, I wanted to teach on, sometimes sermons just turn out differently, but I, I, when I started writing this sermon and studying for this sermon, I had full intention to teach on the parable of the soils and Mark 4 and the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 and you reap what you sow in Galatians 6. Because when Jesus and the Bible talk about change and transformation, Jesus often, and the New Testament writers often use organic metaphors, like soils. Jesus says, hey, let me talk about, talk about change and how the kingdom of God starts to work in your life. It's like a farmer scattering seed everywhere. He's like so liberal. He's almost wasteful. He's like chucking seed just everywhere. And some falls on the path and some falls on the, th on the thorns and some falls on this dry ground and then some falls on good soil. And that's his parable. And the, the stuff that falls on the good soil, everything else dies, eventually dies. But the stuff that falls on good soil reaps a harvest 10, 20, 50 fold what was planted. Miraculous growth. And Jesus, when he's asked to explain about these parables, is, don't you understand? It's about the heart. It's, about the, it's not soils, it's the soul. It's a parable of the soul. And there's, there's different souls that are receptive to God in different ways. And there's some people that are so worried about the worlds and the cares of this world. There's so, people, so many people that listen to the lie of Satan that this word is sown and Satan plucks it away immediately because you're always listening to his lies. There's another people that you're just dry and dead. But there are people that are receptive. That they've created the kind of life and atmosphere to, to receive the word. And in that, the seed grows. Now, do they control the growth? They don't control the growth. You don't control the growth. You just receive the growth. You just like sit there and go, okay, I, let your word come in, into me and then grow in my life. How does it grow? You don't control that. I want to be this kind of Christian. You don't control that. 
I want to go to this mission field. You don't control that. I want to work in this sort of thing. You don't control that. That's up to God. You just receive it and you have to create the atmosphere. I think the, the triangle transformation is the creating the atmosphere for God to do the change he wants to do. And then you get to the fruit of the spirit in Galatians 5. And Jesus or Paul talks about the fruits of the spirit versus the works of the flesh. And he mixes his metaphors. Wait, works, works of flesh and fruit of the spirit? Wouldn't it be the fruit of the spirit and the thorns of the flesh? Why are you mixing your metaphors? And here's why Paul is mixing his metaphors. The, 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 the works of the flesh, when you work in the flesh, that's you working. That's you doing those things. Envy, strife, sexual morality, all his giant list in Galatians 5. But the fruit of the spirit happens by you being receptive. You don't control that. That happens as you simply create the atmosphere for God's seed, his word, his truth, to live inside your life and grow out of that fruit. You control the works of the flesh. Oh, those are obvious. But the fruit of the spirit? No, no, no. You have to create the kind of life, the kind of atmosphere for, the, for God's word to grow deep. And then the very next chapter, Paul talks about you reap what you sow. He almost says, now no, you're the farmer too. And what are you sowing into your life? You reap, God will not be mocked. You will reap what you sow. If you, if you sow to the flesh, you will reap a harvest of flesh. If you sow the spirit, you will reap the spirit. This, this, is, this, is, this is change. Change is possible. But to think that you don't have a part to play would be wrong. I would be lying to you. I would be going against a lot of the New Testament. You and I can cooperate in the change. We can partner with God in change. We can say yes to the change and receive God's word. We can receive the scriptures. We can receive the gospel and let it grow in us as we create the right, the right environment.